Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church, East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more, of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture is Exodus 3.16 to 4.17. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, Behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, 
and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these signs. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, I want to say good morning. I do also want to apologize. Uh, we're currently looking for a deacon of fun uh, for good reasons. Otherwise, I keep on making events like this, where, where we do like Bible trivia. And so if you want to be the deacon of fun, uh, jake at christcitychurch.ca. Otherwise, these are the events you get. Can I pray for us? Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for the church. We thank you for fun. We thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us. That you love us. That you have a plan for our lives. And that you have the power uh, to accomplish your plan. Father, help us this morning uh, to hear things according to your spirit that we need to hear. That we'd be transformed. That we would look more like your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, last week we ended abruptly mid-conversation. It's actually quite rude of us. In the middle of Moses' divine encounter with Yahweh at the burning bush. This moment of revelation showing Moses who he truly is. And Yahweh saying, this is who I am. This is who you are and who God is. But their conversation is not done. As we hinted at in broad strokes last Sunday, God has a plan, a purpose behind this divine encounter. It's to liberate his people. Sorry. To liberate his people from Egyptian oppression. And as we turn to consider that plan this morning, we're going to discover three things. If you're writing in your scripture journal, if you're taking notes, if you have your Bible out, here they are. Just what exactly the plan is for Israel, what Moses is to say to the elders and to the people. Second, we'll see the proof that Moses has given to convince these people that he did truly meet with God on this mountain. And then thirdly and finally, we'll note the provision that Yahweh gives to Moses quite graciously in the face of his unbelief, in the face of his stubbornness. And as we walk through the text this morning, we can keep the three points up there. I want you to have an eye for each of these things in your own life. I want you to ask, what's God's plan for me? What's God's plan for me? I want you to ask, how do I know he's strong to accomplish this plan in my life? What proof have I been given? I want you to ask, how do I know that he'll provide? What we have before us this morning is God's sufficiency for Israel. God's sufficiency for us on full display everywhere we turn. And the question is, will you see it? Will we see it? I I hope you will. So Bible's open, Exodus 3, 16 to 22. If you don't have a Bible at all, we have some, maybe one, uh, at the back. Take it, keep it. It's our gift to you. But I want you to follow along in your Bibles. This is God's Word. We're going to read up until verse 22, beginning at uh, verse 16. Let's read this together again. Go, Yahweh says, 
and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you. Again, that word there is, I've closely observed you. I'm watching you closely. And what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt, of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, it's his covenant name, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know, he says, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. We won't spend too much time unpacking the, the particulars of the plan this morning because as we'll see, God's going to do it. And so we'll unpack the plan as it happens in real time. For now, though, let me just sketch for us the outline of God's plan. Here's what's going to happen, says God. This is, this is what's going to take place. He says, first, you're going to go to the elders. It's helpful to remind ourselves at this point, Israel is not this cohesive nation with, with the accompanying bureaucracy. There are tribal people with, with, with tribal leaders, elders. And so if they're going to go together up out of Egypt, they need all the elders to be on the same page. And so let's go and gather them. And let's go together in this. It's wise. Second, God says, tell the elders this. Verse 16 and 17. God has observed. He knows it's been done to you in Egypt. Second, God says, I promise I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt and bring you into the land. Then God says, the elders will listen to your voice. They'll listen to you. Fourth, God says, you'll ask Pharaoh to go. Now, look at this with me. This request, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, is not to be understood as um, Moses tricking Pharaoh or God tricking Pharaoh. It's a, a cultural euphemism. He's saying, basically, we're going into the wilderness for an indefinite period of time. It's like you and I say things like, can I have just a second of your time? What do we mean by that? We don't mean just a literal second. We mean, I want to talk to you. Same thing happening here. Three days into the wilderness, he's saying to Moses, we're leaving for an indefinite period of time. Moses is to say that to Pharaoh. Fifth, Pharaoh will say no. Sixth, I don't have that many fingers right now. So God will stretch out his mighty hand and strike the Egyptians. Seventh, to add insult to injury, the Hebrew women will plunder the Egyptians like conquered people and take from them their silver and their gold and their clothing and adorn their children with it. That's the plan. That, as we'll see in the next few chapters, is what's going to take place in this story. That's the plan, God says. And while we're going to walk through it in the coming weeks and months, for now it's worth noticing a few things. First, see this. Don't skip past this. God accomplishes his plan. God does what he, say, what he says he'll do. 
And this should come as no surprise to us, having just heard that God's name is, I will be who I will be. We could transpose that into our situation and say, God's name is, I will do what I will do. It's who God is. Shouldn't surprise us. Just as God is not contingent upon human beings for his existence, he is not contingent upon human beings or our doings for the accomplishment of his plan. And while he will use Moses, and today he does use the church, the security of God's plans rests entirely upon his decreed will. He said it, and so it will happen. And I want to ask this morning, maybe you're new, maybe you've forgotten, but do you know God's plan for this world? Do you know God's plan for this broken, sin-filled, messed-up world? In Acts 2, it says, God sent his son Jesus to be delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, to be crucified. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Now listen, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as what? as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. And so we're not meant, as we read our Bibles, and I hope you're reading your Bible this year, we're not meant to read our Bibles and come to the New Testament wondering if God will do the things he says he will do. This is meant to be a settled matter in our minds, a settled matter in our hearts. We are meant to learn in the Exodus story and so many other stories of deliverance throughout the Bible that God always accomplishes his, his plan. If I were to tell you this morning that I plan to climb Mount Everest this week, you would be wise to be suspicious of my claim. Uh, if you know me especially, uh, you know, perhaps it's obvious, I have no mountain climbing experience, no time spent at altitude, or even the, the money and, and the resources to accomplish such a feat. But if you had seen me do it before, you'd think different. If I had thousands upon thousands of years of climbing peak after peak after peak, you wouldn't bat an eye at me telling you I was going to climb Mount Everest. Of course he'll do it. Just makes sense. Why then, friends, do we doubt the Lord? Why then do we doubt, struggle to believe his plan to unite all things, redeem all things, renew all things in the person of Jesus? Is it because deep down we don't believe Exodus really happened? Or is it because deep down we don't believe Jesus lived and died and rose from the grave? Our faith, I want to be so clear on this, our faith is a historical faith. It rises and falls on events. What I am selling you this morning, hopefully I'm not selling you anything, but what we're about as a church is not some hypothetical, ethereal mysticism. 
We're talking about real things that happened in time and space, events that now shape our lives and the events that we participate in. Our faith is a historical faith that God has and will accomplish his plan ought not to surprise us. What might surprise us, though, is how God accomplishes his plan. God accomplishes his plan in Egypt, and he accomplishes his plan in us and in this world through demolishing, destroying, laying to naught the gods and the idols that oppose him. Wipes them out. Our reading today, look back at the text. Our reading today is a prelude to the battle that is coming. Like tension is rising already in our text. The, the, the temperature is, is going up just, just one degree here. There's a divine battle coming between God and the supposed gods of Egypt. And spoiler, it will be a blowout. We see this divine battle language throughout our text. Notice that God says in Exodus 3, 19 to 20. Look there. He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Note that. Then he says, and notice this, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. If you've read your Bible before, you know that these phrases, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, occur over and over and over and over and over again in our Old Testament. They, they happen all the time. Well, I was just reading in Isaiah 31 this morning. Mighty hand, outstretched arm. But notice, anytime we read these phrases in our Old Testament, they're always in connection to the Exodus. Always in connection to this event. And that's for a reason. I'm, I'm going to put a picture up on the screen here. It's a picture of, of Pharaoh Tutmos III. And he's in his, his smiting position. Uh, the, the, the stone chiseler has said, strike a pose. And he has you know, struck his smiting position. And he's holding it there, and, and they're chiseling away, right? In, in the pharaohs at this time period, at the time of the Exodus, language of a mighty hand and an outstretched arm is a uh, victory expression. And so pharaohs were known, that pharaoh has a mighty hand. That pharaoh conquered those people with his outstretched arm. It's a direct reference to, to Egyptian terminology, Egyptian phraseology that would have been very familiar in the time. Do you see what the authors of the Bible are doing here? Do you see what Yahweh is doing here? See, when Yahweh says, I will rescue Israel, he's saying, I will rescue Israel with my mighty hand, my outstretched arm. It's a direct confrontation of Egypt's divine kings. And so it's like there are two guys at the gym, and there's one guy over here, and he's flexing, and he thinks he's strong, but really he's got nothing. And there's another guy over here, and he flexes. And the Lord says, I'll destroy you. I'm much stronger than you. The, the difference being that while Egyptian kings assert their might with chariots and technological superiority, God asserts his might completely on his own. God's plan rests on God's power. I want us to pause for a second. In moments of crises, when our backs are against the wall, where do we turn? 
Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. It is a great comfort to know in a world that seems so lost that not only does God have a plan for redemption, but he has the power for redemption as well. It's to this power we turn next as God gives Moses signs to perform before the elders. Look at our second point with me, the proof. So the plan's been unveiled. Right? The schematics are before Moses. Right? This is what's going to happen. And still he has questions. Verse 1, chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And in response, God gives Moses three signs to perform before the Israelites. But before we look at them, I think it's wise to say something here about signs. Signs. Who among us has not asked God for a sign in our life, right? God, if you want me to take this job, give me a sign. God, if you want me to marry this person, give me a sign. God, if you're truly upset about this thing I'm doing, you will let me know with a sign, won't you? I want us to see a few things when it comes to signs. Notice, in Exodus 4, Moses doesn't ask for a sign. Moses says, listen God, I don't think they'll believe me. Let's be just honest here, Lord. This is crazy. This is wild. I don't think they'll believe me. His posture when it comes to signs is noticeably different than, say, a guy like Gideon, who we read about later in Judges chapter 6. So Israel's delivered from Egypt. They're brought out. They're now being led by Judges. And then Judges 6, we read about this guy named Gideon. Gideon who's tasked with overthrowing the Midianites. And, and there's a conversation in Judges 6 that, that parallels the one Moses is having here with God in Exodus 3 and 4 in so many ways. In, in Judges 6, there's also this veiled appearing of God. In Judges 6, there's this promise that God will be with Gideon and the Israelites. But noticeably different, Gideon demands signs. Look at Judges 6, 16 to 17. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And Gideon said to the Lord, If now I have found favor in your eyes, listen, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. God, in his grace, does give Gideon a sign. The thing about signs, though, and maybe you've experienced this, is that signs are like a drug. Gideon keeps wanting more, and the more he wants the sign, the more true faith eludes him. Author Jen Wilkin, she says this, As long as Gideon is calling the shots and demanding a sign of God, Gideon receives no peace on the other side of it. He just needs another sign. The attitude of needing a sign at every turn not only says, I will live by sight and not by faith. 
it also fundamentally misunderstands the character of God. It says to God, you've got to prove yourself to me, missing that he is the one who says what? He will be who he will be. So don't mistake what God does next in Exodus. He gives Moses signs, not because Moses asked for them, he doesn't, but because he's gracious. And each one of these gracious signs communicates something particular about God's power. Each sign will act as a proof to the Israelites that God will do what he says he will do. Let's look at the first sign with me. Verse 2. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And then it says, and this is so funny to me, and Moses ran from it. Obviously, it's a snake. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff again in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Moses' unassuming and simple shepherd's staff will become the sign throughout Exodus of God's authority and power. Over and over again, we'll see this character of, of the shepherd's staff as a sign of authority and power. And here, it's a sign given to Moses to demonstrate God's power over Egypt. See, in Egypt, the snake represented Egyptian royalty and power. Maybe you've seen one of those Egyptian headdresses before with the cobra on the front. The snake is the sign of Egyptian royalty and power. But more than that, though, in the story of the Bible, the serpent is the symbol of all earthly powers opposed to Yahweh, opposed to the Lord. So, of course, in Genesis 1, it's a serpent that we find challenging Yahweh's authority in the garden, right? In picking up this snake then, in subduing it in the sign for the people, God wants to communicate to Israel this sign that he is king over all kings that would oppose him. He is king over all earthly powers, earthly forces that would stand against him. That is king seen and, as the third sign will show us, kings unseen. Skip down to this third sign with me. Verse 8. If they will not believe you, God said... Or listen to the first sign. They may believe the latter sign. That's the second sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. We'll stop there. The Nile in Egypt uh, was a god named Happy. H-A-P-I. Which is funny because later he's not going to be happy as to what happens to him. Okay, this is a little pastor's joke for you. Well before deep, it's not my own joke, I heard, I heard it from somebody else, I'm sorry. Um, well before deep underground aquifers were found that, that, that today like, give water to the modern nation of Egypt, uh, the Nile was really one of the lone sources of water in this area. And so unsurprisingly, the Nile was worshipped as God. The Nile was worshipped as a deity. It was a center for, for yearly religious festivals, which if we just, again, pause for a moment and look back at uh, Exodus chapter 1, where we see the Hebrew boys are, are systematically killed. How? By being thrown into the Nile. 
We, we learn here now that that being thrown into the eye was not just a political act, it was a worshipful act. It was a religious act. Sacrifice to the God happy, to, to, to keep him happy. So when God gives Moses this sign, Nile water poured out, turned into blood, the message is clear once again. Yahweh is king over kings. Lord over every spiritual entity and being and power. He rules and reigns alone. Do you know that Yahweh is king over kings today? That he is above not just earthly powers, but heavenly ones. Again, the Bible says that when Jesus was crucified on the cross, something decisive happened in heaven. What looked like earthly defeat from our perspective, actually in the heavenly realm, was tremendous, overpowering victory. Look at Revelation chapter 12. Now war rose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Look at verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. What, what serpent-mastering sign have we been given? The sign of the cross. At the cross, God grabs the great Satan, the great dragon, by the tail, maybe even hurls him around, and throws him down. Him and all his angels with him. Again, without asking, God graciously gives Moses another sign. So look at this last sign, which actually is the second sign that God gives Moses. Verse 6. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. Just pause for a second. After just seeing his staff turn into a snake, you have to imagine Moses is a bit hesitant to stick his hand inside his cloak. Like, scorpion? Spider? He does it, though. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Moses' hand is afflicted with some sort of skin disease. When he puts it back in, he pulls it out again, it's healed. It's fine. God is king over kings. God is king over the body. Over the body. And this crystallizes for us later when Moses' questions, having turned into faithless stubbornness, God angrily responds. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Is it not I, Yahweh, leprosy or not leprosy, sight or blindness, capable communicator or mute, power over the body and its functions, 
its limitations resides ultimately in God. So once more, let's pause. The author, uh, Mark Twain, he once quipped, It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts that I do understand. And verse 11 to me is one of those I understand, but I don't like it parts. It could be because I, like you, live and swim in a culture that idolizes the body. I know this idolatry very well. It's not a foreign idolatry. It's a familiar idolatry. Uh, My YouTube algorithm, which, by the way, if you want to know what you really love, just ask your YouTube algorithm. My my YouTube algorithm recently has been pushing me videos of uh, anti-aging and longevity videos. There you go. Now you know. So maybe we don't like it because it challenges our cultural idolatry. But perhaps more likely... This passage fits the I understand, but I don't like category because we have borne suffering in our bodies. We, or ones we love, have been the recipients of misfiring synapses in our brains, tormenting bodily ailments, irreversible, untreatable, ultimately fatal diseases, Diseases like leprosy in Moses' day that would have caused social ostracization, social rejection. Diseases that perhaps have sentenced you or one you love to a life they would have never chosen for themselves. And while we're given no pat answers in the Bible towards these questions of why suffering, when suffering, to whom suffering, there is some comfort in our text this morning. That as we've seen all along, God knows, sees, and hears all we're experiencing. All we're experiencing in our bodies and all we're experiencing in our interior lives as well. There is this thread, I don't know if you saw this, this thread in our passage today where God tells Moses how people are going to respond before they actually respond like that. Revealing to the reader that God knows the heart of humanity. The afflictions of the heart as well. Look look, look at it. Exodus 3.18. God said, the elders will listen to you. He knows them. They they will listen to you. Exodus 3.19. He says, the king of Egypt only understands power plays, mighty arms. So God will respond in kind. And then he knows, Exodus 4.19, that when Aaron... Moses' brother sees him, he will be glad in his heart. Yahweh knows not only the afflictions of our body, but the afflictions and the motives of our mind and our heart as well. He sees, he hears, he knows. And our weaknesses have not escaped his purview. Rather, as we'll see next, he plans to use them for his mysterious yet glorious purposes. Last point, the provision. The provision. Before we look at how God provided for Moses, we need to look at what's going on in Moses right now. Up until this point, Moses' questions have been legitimate. 
all stemming from his rejection in Egypt, from his own people, and the very real fear of Pharaoh and his forces. Moses' questions are legitimate given what he's lived through, what he's experienced. But now, however, question time is over. And Moses, like us, is faced with a simple question. Will you do what God has asked you to do? Will you obey the Lord? And it seems in verse 10 that the answer is no. Look at it. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. While the truthfulness of Moses' protest has been debated, what is obviously true is that Moses will do a lot of speaking in the future. He'll actually speak quite a bit in Exodus. He'll talk a lot more in the Pentateuch. He can and he will speak in eloquent and powerful ways. It seems likely then what's happening in this moment is what one scholar calls exaggerated humility. Exaggerated humility. Douglas Stewart, he says, exaggerated humility is often employed in situations where one is appealing for help or mercy from someone else or showing one's mannerly self-deprecation at being given a great assignment. And really, there are examples of this all over the Bible, but also from our own lives we can understand this, can't we? Your boss comes to you and says, you know what, I've tasked you for this job. And you go, what? Who, me? I couldn't do that. Even though you know you have the experience, and you know you have the skill set, and you know you're the right person for the job, you still say what? Who, me? Oh, lowly me? What an honor. I think exaggerated humility has its place. I actually think the Apostle Paul uses exaggerated humility in the New Testament. Here I am, he says, right? Chief of all sinners. But here in Exodus, Moses employs this exaggerated humility as a false humility to say no to God. To say no to God. To say no to God's call on his life. And that is sin. That's sin. Even after God reminds Moses that he is God of the body, including the mouth, Moses flat out refuses, Oh my Lord. Look at that. Oh my Lord. That word there for Lord is not the covenant name Yahweh. Moses has forgotten the covenant name Yahweh here in verse 13 and in verse 10. He calls him still the general Lord or Adonai. Moses doesn't get it. We don't get it. This is not some God among the gods. He is Yahweh, the one who made covenant with and provided for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's told you, Moses. He's shown you, Moses, that he is powerful in a way that you're not familiar with. That he is powerful over politics, powerful over the body, and powerful over all spiritual forces that would oppose him. And you're saying no? Please send someone else? While God's anger is kindled, and it is kindled, notice, notice, it's his grace that prevails. How does God provide for Moses? And how does God provide for us in our calling? I want us to close by considering these two things. First is this. God supernaturally empowers our biggest 
weaknesses so that he gets the most glory. God supernaturally empowers our biggest weaknesses so that he gets the most glory. God takes an unwilling shepherd and causes him to stand before the world's most powerful man. He takes a single wandering fugitive to lead an entire nation home. He takes an unassuming staff and with it he overthrows a global superpower. Friends, you and I are not the point. It's not about us. And when we are not the point, we no longer need to yo-yo between pride and false humility. We are freed from the cycle. There's this little book written by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And in this little book, he writes about another book, uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Listen to what Keller writes. If we were to truly meet a humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from that meeting uh, with them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. God supernaturally empowers our biggest weaknesses. Why? So that he gets the most glory. Last thing. In his provision, God gives us each other. God gives us each other. Look at this. God gives Aaron to Moses. He didn't have to, but he did. And did you notice... God provided the provision of Aaron well before Moses knew he needed Aaron. Well before Moses' complaint. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, God says to Moses. Aaron is already on his way. I can't help but think of this passage in light of my past week. Part of church leadership Part of church membership is saying goodbye to good people, to the best people, over and over and over again. And despite how often God has provided for our church, and he has, and for my family, and he has, and for me, I'm still left asking God each time, surely no one else is coming. Surely the tap has run dry. I want to just read this verse again to you. And this might just be for me, but I imagine it might be for you as well. Behold, they are coming out to meet you. Behold, they are coming out to meet you. Moses' calling, our calling, is never a solo calling. Anytime someone puts on like their big boy pants and says, I'm going to do this by myself, you should sound the alarm. That is not the Christian life I know. That is not the Christian life the Bible speaks of. Not only does God provide Moses, but here's another often ignored thread in our passage. God provides elders. Elders are this silent character in the book of Exodus. 
Yet if you have eyes to see them, they're all over it. It's the elders who, along with Moses, received the instructions for Passover and are entrusted to ensure the people did what they're told. It's the Moses and some elders of Israel who are together in the wilderness when Moses strikes the rock and provides water for the people. And in Exodus 18, when Moses is overwhelmed, he can't make any decisions. It's the elders and able men, it says, who come together to carry the discernment load. Friends, God has given us one another. He gives us the whole body in all her gifts to journey together towards the land promised to us. He provides for us. And just as the Hebrew mothers would have adorned their children in Egyptian gold and silver and clothes, so too does God in Christ adorn his children today with every spiritual blessing. He is completely and utterly on his own and according to his own power, entirely self-sufficient. He gives us every single thing we need. Let's pray. So, Father, we come this morning uh, as your people, asking that you would provide. That you would, by your Spirit, as those who have been united to Christ, give us all we need. Not all we need to serve ourselves. Not all we need to serve our idols. Not all we need so that we can be happy or, or feel self-fulfilled, but all we need to, to fulfill the plans that you've given for us. To accomplish the purposes that, purposes that you've la laid out for us. Father, I ask that you would, by your Spirit, help us this morning. Meet us in our weakness and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.